Welcome to Jaipur Bites, the JLF podcast. I'm your host, Laksh Datta. This episode is the audio version of a live online session from JLF Colorado 2020. Waiting for the Vaccine William A. Hazeltine and Ambarish Satvik in conversation. Delighted and honored to be here uh, in conversation with the very illustrious uh, Dr. Hazeltine. And I'm, you know, I'm perfectly aware that I'm here in my capacity as a sort of fly in the champagne. Uh, and, uh, you know, you will get obviously uh, several mouthfuls of champagne in the form of Dr. Hazeltine, but you'll have to suffer the occasional mouthful of fly in the form of Ambarish Satvi. So welcome, Dr. Hazeltine. Uh, and we are here, uh, I think, largely fueled by circumstance uh, to discuss one of the great kind of metaphysical mysteries uh, of the living world, the virus, which, uh, you know, is, is not even properly a living organism. It's just a complex assembly of molecules that has no capacity to grow, metabolize, reproduce, uh, you know, no, no organs of locomotion, uh, but yet, we find that we're all down on our knees on account of this very complex and very curious critter. But we are doing this in the wake of, uh, of news, both from the Pfizer Corporation and Moderna, that we might have uh, a reasonably efficacious vaccine to look forward to. So, Dr. Hazardine, are you breathlessly excited? Do you think this is going to be the savior of our imperiled bacon? Well, um, thank you for the opportunity to speak. I'd like to talk a little bit about the uh, viruses before we begin the conversation of the vaccine, since you gave such a uh, humanistic introduction of uh, these small entities. I think the most fundamental question of what is life? I worked on that question as a uh, undergraduate when we were trying to understand uh, was there life on Mars and leading up to the first flyby mission. Uh, actually, my first scientific paper was on the subject of is there life on Mars? And to understand that question, you have to understand life. And to me, life is any system that's capable of reproduction in its greater environment. Change, mutation, and changing and then reproducing those changes that occur. So it has the capability to adapt to its environment. As it happens, the greater living world is its ecosystem. I believe viruses are alive. They do adapt, they meet all the criteria for life. If you include the living world as part of their ecosystem. But from this particular perspective, you have to think of viruses as intelligent machines as code crackers. And like all living forms, they have to adapt to their environment. Let's take what's happened with SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes COVID-19. It's adapted to a brand new ecological niche called seven and a half billion human beings and the way we live, the way we communicate and the way we organize ourselves. 
And if you look through history, there have been successful coronaviruses of this family. There are four of them in constant circulation. They come back and infect you every single year, whether you've been infected or not. In some, some cases, they actually know the same virus has infected the same person four, years, four times in six years. That's a feature of these viruses. They've cracked some kind of immunological code that once you've had it, you can get it again. It's kind of like the flu, but it's the same virus. It's not a different virus. But this particular strain has cracked a very interesting code. That is, it's cracked our biological code so it can get into us. It's cracked a transmission code. It lies doggo. It causes almost no symptoms in 85, 90% of the people that they infect, they're a very mild cold. They go around spreading it. And then it makes maybe 15 or 20% of people at most seriously ill. And depending on where you are in the world, it will kill 0.1 to 1% of the people. It's like polio. Most people don't realize that for every one person paralyzed, 200 people had polio. They just didn't know it. And for every 2,000 people, one out of every 2,000 people died who got it. So it's very much uh, like COVID. And we hope the solution will be very much the same, which is a vaccine. But it terrorized my young life. And I have to say, what I'm watching with my grandchildren is what I lived through. Don't go out. Don't go swimming. It was not a winter virus. It was a summer virus. It's a uh, entero, uh, oral fecal transmission and waterborne. Uh, don't go to the swimming pool, don't, all the things that you're hearing now we had to do. And then all of a sudden there was vaccine and life changed, went back to normal. We forgot that there's this code cracker out there, these intelligent machines making trillions of experiments every day trying to get us. That's how we should think of our natural environment. And we forget that. This is a reminder not to forget. This won't be the last one in young people's lifetime. It will happen again and again. Polio, AIDS has killed 37 million people so far. This virus is a piker compared to AIDS, although it does it a bit faster. And it's uh, really tearing through America. So that's sort of the overall picture. And the code that it's cracked that I find particularly interesting is a socio-political code. It turns out that some human organizations, countries, can control this without a vaccine and without a drug. They happen to be mostly in East Asia, not in Southeast Asia, in East Asia. China, a country of 1.4 billion people, had a raging epidemic in one of their major cities and shut it down within three months and there's no COVID in China, except an occasional sporadic case that comes in from the outside. It might be frozen on the outside of a cod from South America. It might be a traveler who's come in surreptitiously but it's very sporadic. They basically have had no deaths for months. It's controlled. Now, what they can't do is they can't leave China. It's a controlled area of 150 humanity next to the raging epidemic that is India, next to the raging epidemic that is Russia, surrounded on the, on the uh, Western side by the Central Asia where there's a raging epidemic. They're careful, they have to be careful, but it shows that it can be controlled. But what's happened in the rest of the world? What's happened in Europe? What's happened in America? What's happened in South America? And what's happened in India? It's a breakdown of either society or the social political code. And it's not just in one country, it's in many countries. And that is a deep question to ponder. 
the virus figured it out by what I call machine intelligence, just random code cracking, throwing a lot of combinations. Our job is to do something different. Now, evolution, we can now understand in a different way. Evolution is what machine intelligence is, throwing random changes at the environment and seeing what fits. So we can understand evolution as we understand machine intelligence and artificial intelligence. And as you can remember, artificial intelligence can be chess masters. So it can be pretty tricky. And this one is cracked a political code, socio-political uh, code. So it's a, a, a very interesting thing. So, but what has nature also done? Nature has evolved intelligence, our intelligence. And the difference between what we can do and what other living systems can do is we can adapt in a generation and we can even adapt in a day. I was just speaking before we opened how we've all adapted to COVID. I'm living in a country home that I never thought I would do in a million years. After growing up in a small country town, I never wanted to go back. I'm happy to be here, I can tell you. That's adaptation and it's intelligence, the evolution of intelligence that allows us to adapt to change within a single lifespan. We don't have to wait for evolution to take place. We can adapt. That's intelligence that allows us to adapt to circumstance. Now, what is the major adaptation? And I'm getting to vaccines, believe it or not. China has its way of adapting and the West is trying to solve it a different way by making a vaccine. So we don't have to worry about it anymore. Chinese want vaccines too. And they're actually the first ones to start making and using vaccines. Why? It's a little bit of a mystery because there's no COVID in China. What are they worried about? Invading India? The first people they gave it to was their military. Why does the Chinese military need COVID when there's no COVID in China? Interesting question. They are face to face with Indians up there in the mountains somewhere. And Indians sure has have plenty of COVID to give them if they want to get it. So there is some reason for it, but it's a not the reason that we do it. We do it because, frankly, we're facing a total disaster. We're headed toward, right now, 200,000 people a day that we know are getting infected, which means over a million a day are getting infected. And of the 200,000 who get infected a day, about 1% will die in this country. That's 2,000 people every day, more than a death a minute. It's headed to twice that, which is going to get to in a couple of weeks if we don't do something drastic, which we're not gonna do because we're politically paralyzed. So we're trying to find a vaccine. That's sort of a background for vaccines. Our solution is let's have medicine solve this problem for it, solve a problem that society can't. So that's where we are. Now I'm happy to answer very specific questions if you have them about where we are with the vaccines, what they might do, what they don't do, what we know, et cetera. But it is a story of trying to find a medical, biomedical solution to a problem that other people have solved without it. Indeed, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm absolutely fascinated by the sort of evolutionary intelligence that you speak of. And perhaps uh, microscopic pathogens tend to exhibit this kind of evolutionary intelligence, kind of tribal species intelligence more than uh, more complex organisms. And I'll, I'll for the people who are listening in, I'm happy to offer two examples of this kind of intelligence. Now, I mean, as, as we discussed that the virus, once it gets inside your system, it can 
make the host do funny things because it has to actually to disseminate, get outside the host and infect other people, to jump onto other hosts, to infect other hosts. So it makes the host do funny things like sneeze, cough, spit out, you know, vomit, explode in diarrhea, bleed out of its pores. It, it knows no righteousness in that sense. Now, consider for a moment uh, the pathogen toxoplasma, which causes toxoplasmosis. Now, this is a pathogen that can only sexually reproduce in the intestines of a cat. And uh, it's defecated out of the, uh, the cat's intestines and then contaminates the soil. And then you've got animals and birds eating uh, the contaminated plant matter uh, and getting infected. Now, let's say when a rat consumes uh, contaminated plant matter and gets infected with toxoplasma, it can't exit the system because it can't sexually reproduce in the intestines of the cat. It gets, it invades the neural tissues, the muscle tissues of, of the rat, of the rodent, where it can't exit. So it does something very curious. It travels to the brain of, of the rat, of the rodent. It doesn't cause any great physical violence there, but it holds sway over various parts of the brain, making the rat perform acts of glandular fearlessness, of recklessness. It makes the cat not afraid of the rat. So it's more likely to get eaten. You know, and, and that's how it's, it's a kind of curious uh, way of exiting the body of the rodent where it cannot sexually reproduce. It has to kind of game the system. Consider rabies, for instance, you know, uh, from the locus of the bite of, of, uh, of the rabid animal, it, the virus moves into neural tissues, goes to the brain, causes severe inflammatory responses in the brain, causes hallucination, delirium, confusion, spasm, all of that. But it, has to exit the animal to then disseminate itself and spread to other animals. So it's, it then starts spreading through the salivary glands of the rabid animal. It causes spasms in the throat of the, the animal that is infected. So the animal, the poor thing, can't even swallow its own saliva. And therefore the saliva keeps foaming out incontinently. And what is the only thing that a dying, delirious, confused animal uh, can do? Uh, you know, it can, it can try and bite the demons that are causing it pain. So it, the animal goes around running, trying to bat and bite anyone and everyone in its path. So effectively, the, the frothing and the foaming at the mouth of a rabid animal is uh, the virus trying to satisfy life's longing for itself. It's a curious kind of species intelligence that you speak of, and it's, it's fascinating. Yeah. Uh, but, more fascinating if it weren't killing somebody of us. <laughs> It'd be great to right. study. Yeah, yeah, with the rats but, and the cats. Indeed, the cats indeed. Rats. Uh, but, I think but, it'd be much better. But, but coming to the vaccine, we're going to be able to solve this with a vaccine. Yeah. It looks as if we are, uh, at least temporarily. Now, there's some peculiarities of coronaviruses that raise serious questions that have not been really addressed uh, by these vaccines. We think of a vaccine as something that, number one, prevents you from getting infected. By the way, almost no vaccine. There's no vaccine that actually does that. You get infected and you remember you've got it, so you shut it down quickly. It's kind of like uh, a fire alarm. Waste basket catch fire, and before the house can burn down, the firemen come. Um, that's what it's supposed to do. It's supposed to get you, stop you from getting sick, and it's supposed to stop you from dying. And ideally, it stops it from being transmitted from one person to another. Now, You'd be surprised to know that neither polio nor flu viruses stop you from getting infected. 
what they do do is they stop the, especially polio from you getting ill from it. You don't get sick from it if you've got the vaccine. It doesn't go into your nervous system. It gets in the rest of your body. With influenza, it only works to attenuate the disease in about 30 to 50% of people, depending on the year. But it doesn't stop transmission. But it's, it works enough that we're happy to take it. At least some of us are. It doesn't work very well for old people. You've got to give us a whopping dose. If you're over, by the way, old by this standard is 45. So my guess is almost everybody's listening is old. And uh, the flu vaccines, unless you take the whopping dose, the four times dose isn't gonna do much good. So what do we expect from these vaccines that are being developed? We expect that they'll not stop infection, but they'll stop us from getting sick. And so far it looks like these two out of the 200 that are being tried are gonna do that. And my suspicion is 100 out of the 200 are gonna work to do that. That's the first thing to say. Will it stop some people from getting sick? No, because at least 10% of the people who had the vaccine were infected and got sick. And so some of them are gonna get very sick and some of them are gonna die. But it's gonna massively, if it works the way we think it will, change the disease trajectory of this, which will be very satisfying. But if you look at these viruses, these viruses involve a particular trick, which is they get you and next year, the same guy comes back and gets you again. And the year after that, the same guy comes back and gets you again. And that can go on for your entire lifetime. These viruses are trickier than the flu. They don't have to change to get you. There was recently a study done where one guy got exactly the same virus four times in six years. And as far as I know, it's a few years later, he's gotten the same virus again, even though there were other viruses circulating. So that's one question. How does the virus do it? Does it do it by messing up the immune system when it goes out? Or does it have some tricks up its sleeve so it sort of puts out the fire, turns off the fire alarm? That is very dangerous for vaccines because we depend on that fire alarm for vaccines to work. But this virus can get back into somebody who's already been infected. And how often that happens seems pretty often. And it can happen fast, six weeks to eight weeks so far. We've seen people reinfected within six to eight weeks. So is the vaccine really gonna work? Is it durable? Will you need a booster like you do with polio? Well, there's a lot of the vaccines that are being developed, particularly the uh, one that the Serum Institute is developing uh, for the British is only usable once because it's in a vector which you recognize and then shut down, they can't use it again. And if you need it, a booster every year or every other year, you can't use that vaccine. Now, India is a very interesting place for vaccines. I've traveled the length and breadth of India, met with almost all your vaccine manufacturers. You've got great ones you supply, maybe more than a third of the total world's vaccines, maybe half even. And if there's gonna be a solution to a vaccine solution to the world, it's gonna come from India. You're gonna have simple, stable, cheap vaccines. And I'm pretty sure we're gonna have those within two years. For, and they mostly will come out of India. The ones we're developing, the ones you've mentioned, Pfizer, you have to keep it at minus 70 degrees Fahrenheit or minus 90 degrees centigrade for, uh, or, or vice versa, for, you know, for most of the time. Where can you do that? 
And even the Moderna vaccine, you've got to keep damn cold for a long time. We are developing vaccines that are very heat stable. And as I say, I'm convinced that most of those will come out of the India biofirst, whether it's Bharat, whether it's the Serum Institute, whether it's uh, BioE, you name it, there's a whole series of capabilities there, where it, whether it's Biocon, somebody will in India, or many people in India will be making them, and they're used to making them in the, in the billions of doses. Uh, and that's where they're gonna come from. Now, will they stop transmission? Don't know. That's a real question. Uh, will they have nasty side effects? Some surely will. Will they actually potentiate the virus coming back in? Maybe. There's a lot of unknowns. We're seeing the most positive face of the, the vaccine right now is being used in the people who are best at making antibody responses, which are young people. It's being used immediately. These people are, you're looking at are not getting sick aren't relying on the memory response of the vaccine. They're relying on the actual antibodies you make. It's like pumping somebody full of artificial antibodies. You've given them the antigen, they're newly vaccinated, and that's very different from somebody who's vaccinated a year ago. We have no idea what it's gonna protect people a year later. We hope it will, it might, but these viruses, remember, are really tricky. They've solved a problem. Other viruses wish they could solve, which is to come back unchanged every year. And by the way, it's not a small fraction of people. One third of every cold you get is one of these viruses come back to get you. Every year you get a coronavirus infection. Every one of us. I would warrant there's very few people who I'm listening who've not had one or two colds in the last year. And the chances are greater than 50% that was a coronavirus that's coming back to get you again. So there are some really serious issues about how well these are going to work. But the good news is they are going to work, at least to some extent, and it's going to have some impact. My short-term fear is different from that. Once people think there's a solution, they may get even sloppier. Now you ask yourself, how can you get even ever sloppier than an exponential expansion of a viral infection, which we're having now in the United States? And it's really hard to imagine that. All you can imagine is a, a, a bigger end to the exponential. Uh, bigger number so the it gets a little steeper when people relax even more. But you know, from a from a sociologist point of view, it's so interesting for me to just to, to, to watch. For example, if you want to see where the virus took off this summer, you look at the vacation dates in Spain, which are earlier than those in France, and it took off before. You can look when Greece got it. It's when Englishmen and a few other people went to Greece for the summer. You actually watch in real time. You watch what happens when people come back from holiday and start recongregating. Boom, there's another aspect of this disease. I've worked a lot with AIDS and everybody knows AIDS is a sexually transmitted disease. They don't think of sex and COVID. This is not the words that go together, but COVID is a sexually transmitted disease. And why do I say that? Let me ask you, can you have sex without getting together? Sure, you can have internet sex, but sex is something where people get together. And when people get together, this virus transmits really well. And if you're looking at a lot of the drivers, it's young people's need to have sex. It's driving the infection. How long can you keep 
an 18 to 25 year old locked up in a single apartment is not a reasonable thing to ask of a human being. It's actually against our biological imperatives. We're not wired for that. And this virus knows it. Just like the AIDS virus knew that it could get around with sex in a very predictable way. These viruses figure us out. And they figured out that young people might not get sick, but boy, can they make older people sick. And by the way, let's take America. And when you're talking about who's susceptible, fat people, I should say obese, people are susceptible. What's fat? Body mass index over 30. What fraction of Americans have a body mass over 30? 37%. And in the Midwest, it's over 50%. This virus loves those people because it's a great depot for the virus and those people are have higher inflammation. So it's a great, great place for these viruses to grow and make people sick. And if you ask what's the difference between different groups, one of them is how fat people are or how obese people are. It makes a big difference. So there's other really interesting things. And I'm sure that uh, our kind doctor here is very interested in why the death rate in India is so much lower from this infection than it is in other countries. It's low in Africa too. They're really interesting things to find out about this virus and what it does and how it causes disease. But good news is vaccines are coming, not for people in India, probably for a year before it's widely available. If it is then, that depends on a lot of other factors. And then it will probably lessen the impact of the disease where you are, but it's already low. Um, and so it's not gonna make a huge difference to your country, it makes some difference. For our country to probably allow us to keep our economy going, which is a big deal. Right, so I have two, you know, two questions for you fundamentally. First of all, as you, you said that, you know, it's unlikely that some of the developing countries are not going to get the vaccine at least for a year. And roughly there are about 180 vaccine candidates under trial, but I think about just seven or eight of them are currently undergoing phase three human trials. There's been this uh, large growing concern of whether or not we should have challenge trials, because that's the only way of expediting uh, the trial and getting a vaccine much sooner. In fact, there's this website called onedaysooner.org, uh, which, uh, you know, which, which gives you statistics to the effect that if you're able to deliver a vaccine one month uh, in advance, if you're able to shorten the, the pandemic by a month, you'll end up saving about 720,000 lives. And that's only possible if you carry out challenge trials. That Where do you stand? I've got my blood pressure up a little bit. Mm -hmm. uh, I have written a number of articles with the title, Challenge Trials for SARS-CoV-2 is unnecessary, uninformative, and unethical. Let's take the ethics first. Who wants to give somebody a virus for which there's no cure that can kill them or maim them for life? Nobody wants to do that. And that's what they're proposing to do, okay? It's unnecessary. How many people are getting infected every day? In your country, 30,000, 40,000 in our country, 200,000 a day. That's not enough. How many is enough? You don't need challenge trials to get people to be infected quickly. And uninformative because they use young people. 
very young people who are totally healthy. You're not going to give this virus to an old sick person who really needs it, a vaccine. So it's uninformative. And, you know, I think the ethics alone to knock it out of the box. And already we have proof that you don't need it to get to where we want to be. Now, there's another question about the distribution, and that's why I mentioned India as a source. The virus has got to be heat stable. It's got to be the vaccine. It's got to be heat stable. It's got to be cheap. It's got to be able to be manufactured in large quantities quickly. Those vaccines are coming. And I'm pretty sure they'll work as well as these fancy vaccines. The fancy vaccines had to start because the manufacturing technology is simpler. It's a very good idea for rich countries. And maybe someday it'll be a good idea for poorer countries. But the technology is so refined. It's only going to work for rich countries for the moment. So great as a proof of principle that it can work, not great for the world. Okay. And, right. and people cut all sorts of safety corners. Nobody's inspecting the factories where it's made. Nobody's making you make multiple batches like you have to do for everything else. Our whole distribution system hasn't been worked out. The transportation system is a mess. You're gonna see a big mess. It's gonna kind of look like the testing mess. And you're gonna see different groups fighting with each other. I want it. Well, guess what? Maybe it'll help you, maybe it won't. But the people whose lives it's gonna save aren't gonna get their hands on it for the, long, for the most part. The people right. in America that really need it are our minorities, the mm -hmm. Latinos and the Blacks in poor communities. And they may say that's going to be the first people to get it in a pig's eye. It's not going to happen. This mm -hmm. is not how we're set up. Right. We don't have and systems that allow that to happen. It, it's, it's, it's really kind of horrifying, but that's what, that's what the story is. Right. And because we're running out of time, I'll just, uh, just you know, one more question that I thought I should pose to you. Uh, you mentioned that this is a constantly evolving virus. This is a smart virus. And as uh, it's plain for everybody to see that the case fatality rate of the virus is declining. And it's possibly because the, the milder variants are being spread around more because people are able to move around with milder infections and the more severe forms are uh, sequestered either in hospitals well, or let me isolated. Tell you, I don't think that's true. Okay. So, I've seen uh, no evidence that any strain is less virulent than any other. I have seen evidence that a strain is more transmissible. The strains that now, now circulating in the world became about 10 times more transmissible than the one that started in Wuhan. There was a single mutation that happened somewhere in Europe, probably in March, and now it's spread all over the world. But in terms of disease, I don't see I think the difference in disease has to do with a number of different things. My personal belief is what's happening in your country is that you are much more resistant to toxic shock. You as a doctor know that the average Indian will not suffer toxic shock the way an average Englishman would or an average American. You are so subjected to so many different pathogens that you build up resistance to toxic shock. And I've seen that in ORs. You know, when I've asked my friends who are doing open heart surgery, how can you do that under these conditions? They say, well, these people are going to live. If I did it to you, you'd die. But these people are going to live. And by the way, I expose myself constantly, these friends tell me, to a lot of conditions. So I'm resistant also, because if I get what they got, I'd be in trouble too. So that's, a, that's one explanation. Another is youth. 
who gets it, what the age distribution of the country is. And of course, another one is how many people you test. When people, at first, if you have a testing system that says, I'm only gonna test those people who come in for tests, okay? Because they're sick or they're bothered or they think they have some reason or they're psychotic or whatever reason it is. I'm gonna just catch a small fraction. How small a fraction? In India, about 100th. There's a big debate. Is it 120th or 100th that we catch? Right? That's the debate. It isn't that we're catching nine out of 10. We're not. We're not even catching one out of 10 in India. In the US, we catch about one out of five. So that's another variable that tells you if there's a big population that um, is, you have a population that's small, and all of a sudden you start testing more and more people, you're picking up more and more asymptomatics. So it looks like your death rate is dropping. A key thing to watch is how many people who come in critically ill die. That ratio has been pretty constant, except for some medical changes, which have like uh, use of heparin and blood thinners and things like that. That ratio has changed. Treating people, but if you look at that, that ratio of people get really sick and almost die and need to be saved is about the same. It's about 20% of people who need to be hospitalized because their oxygen levels are below like 92. Have about the same ratio of getting very seriously ill and need heroic measures to save them, like an ECMO machine. Right. Well, those, those figures are slightly different for India, but, but anyway, I think we must move on to uh, some of the questions from the audience. Uh, there's one particular question by Rachel, who's, who's saying that uh, you've been speaking of the virus reintroducing itself in waves. Uh, do you do you think that with the vaccine the world will be the same again? We'll go back to our old ways of life, or do you think it will be any different? And there's another question while I'm at it from Keith, uh, who's saying that uh, you know there are claims by vaccine manufacturers, particularly Pfizer and Moderna. Moderna is saying about 94 to 95 percent efficacy, and the WHO is saying that the vaccine in the short term will not end this nightmare. So Keith asks, is there any hope for us to get out of it? Well, there is, of course, hope. One thing we can hope is our political leadership in whatever country we're in wakes up and decides to do the right thing. In European countries, there's maybe waking up. Uh, but in the United States, we're in a hopeless mess. The political quantity we're in is just horrifying to watch. And every night it gets worse. And uh, they, we don't see any way out until the president changes. And even then things will be so bad. Uh, it's gonna be a nightmare. And the vaccine is not gonna save us. You know, Tony Fauci, who's now a world famous figure, I don't need to tell you who he is, said the Calvary is coming just for, you know, hold on, Calvary's coming. Reminds me of that Indian, the, you know, the, the, the movies where the cowboys and Indians are fighting the Calvary's coming to save them. Except this time the wagon trains will be burned the forts will be overrun. Uh, it's going to be the, the, the homesteads will be burned to the ground. And you've seen those images too, because the Calvary is getting here late if there is a vaccine. And that's going to be for most of the world. We're not getting it in time for this winter, just not. And we'd be damn lucky to get it for the rest of the, much of the world by next winter. Very lucky to get it. Uh, so, um, and then in terms of efficacy, yeah, maybe in the groups they tried it, it's 95% or 
effective in reducing the severity of disease in young people who don't get disease anyway. What are they talking about? Colds. You know what those criteria for sick is? A sniffle, a headache, and a cough. That's what they're talking about. Oh, these people don't get a sniffle, a headache, and a cough. And these people do. Well, that isn't what people want. There are some serious cases, like 11 out of 100, that got really sick without the vaccine. That's what they want. You don't want and none in the group that was vaccinated. That's what you want. But is it going to be the same in older people, sick people, the people that this virus is knocking off? We have no idea yet. So it's certainly not going to be 90% effective. 50% maybe, 60% maybe, kind of like the flu. And like the flu, this thing is now endemic, I think, and is going to come back every year and get us again. So we're going to have to be constantly vigilant. So will life be the same? I think that there are going to be huge changes. First of all, if you're a businessman, you're saying, oh my God, I've got to diversify my supply chain. I've got a single supply chain and it starts in China and that's over. I've got to have multiple supply chains and I've got to have them proximal as well. Just in time is over, it's finished. So people are going to have to have stockpiles of almost everything. That's going to change business in some fundamental ways. Good, bad, different. Second thing is, it's going to globalize the supply chain, which bad for China, good for the rest of the world. Um, people are going to be re working remotely. You know, we've learned that you can have this meeting remotely. Who thought the Jaipur Book Festival would not be in Jaipur or wherever, mm -hmm. Boulder, wherever it takes place, and we'd be talking this way? Who thought that, you know, my uh, uh, daughters, uh, my stepdaughters who, are, who graduated, one of them studying to be a medical student, even her cadaver courses and her laboratory courses are virtual. Try to figure that out, but that's what they're figuring out. That's changed. And how much are we going to pay? Are you going to pay Harvard that huge fee for a virtual education? No, you're not. What's going to happen to universities and the whole structure of universities? And then entertainment. What's going to happen at entertainment? When are you going to be comfortable sitting cheek by jowl with 40,000 people for a soccer match? Maybe a while, maybe a short while for some people, but a longer while for other people. So, right. and you know, your country is peculiarly crowded, let's say. Uh, are people going to change? Well, they can't get away from the crowds. You know, Mumbai is the densest city in the world. Uh, how are, how are going to people live? How are we going to create our environments? Those are things that I think lots of people are thinking about. So life may get more back to normal, but it's going to be a different normal. Right. So uh, we're almost at the end of our time for this session, but uh, there's you know, many more questions. I'll perhaps pick a couple of them. Uh, Edna is asking, what's the, what's the evidence on the epidemic trajectory with and without non-pharmaceutical and pharmaceutical interventions. And, uh, you know, just one more question from my side. So the, the MRA vaccines that- Let me answer, uh, answer that question very quickly. Right. First, and the answer to that question is, it depends on governance, leadership, governance, and social solidarity. If you've got good leadership, good governance, and good social solidarity, medicine doesn't make a damn bit of difference. You'll solve the problem. If you don't have it, Medicine may make a difference, but it's going to be a lot, lot harder and slower. Right. Excellent. Public health and is the answer to this problem, not medicine. Absolutely. And uh, I think perhaps a final question from my side, which is that 
the two successful vaccine candidates uh, that we have information on that have been revealed to us, both of them are uh, mRNA vaccine candidates. This is the first time perhaps this technology is being introduced and used for vaccine production. And we have just interim results uh, for two months on safety. Would you be comfortable in advocating a vaccine for mass use with two months of uh, safety outcomes? And do you no. think the FDA should approve uh, a vaccine? I think they're going to approve it. I hope they don't. I hope they don't even give it emergency use authorization. Uh, they, there's other categories for uh, expanded use, or expanded tests that they can give, which I think they may do. It'll be dangerous to do that without adequate safety data. And actually adequate, there, there are many fundamental blocking and tackling things like inspecting manufacturing plants, looking at stability, looking at the transportation network, all those things are gonna be important. But the thing that's important to remember is if we were speaking about this a month from now, there'll be three other vaccines that have already announced their results. And they have very different characteristics from these. They're much more heat stable. Uh, they're technologies that are a bit further along, not very far along. And you have to remember the Russians testing their vaccine now since August. It hasn't made any difference to the massive epidemic there, but they, they've been testing it. So we're gonna get some results from there. And we may get some results from China, although as I say, it's peculiar because there's no COVID in China. So they have to test it elsewhere. But we're gonna have a, a conversation a month from now. It could be very different from focusing on Pfizer and Moderna. And that's good news. Right, indeed. I think with that, uh, we're practically out of the time allotted to us. It's been absolutely delightful, Dr. Hazeltin. Uh, Thank you for joining us. Thank you for listening to Jaipur Bites, the JLF podcast. I'm your host, Laksh Datta. This podcast is produced by Launchora in partnership with Teamwork Arts. Please follow or subscribe to Jaipur Bites wherever you're listening to this to be notified about new episodes.